listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. If you were here last Sunday, you'll know that I have launched into an extended sermon series on these stories of kingship and nation-making in ancient Israel. Stories from a world so very different from our own, but which can yet speak important insights into our lives and our times. Last Sunday, we considered the determination of Israel to have a king over us, so that we may be like other nations, an aspiration which was soundly critiqued by the prophet Samuel. If you ask for a king, you'll get a king. And a king will only cause you grief. He'll draft your sons to serve in the army. He'll put your daughters to work in menial jobs as cooks and bakers and perfumers. A king will tax your land and its produce, leaving you as little more than indentured servants. Yet, because you persist in your determination to have a king, God will grant it. Just be warned. As tonight's episode begins, a fair bit has unfolded in the larger story. God had allowed for the establishment of kingship in Israel and had called Samuel to anoint Saul. Saul, earlier in the text, is described as a handsome young man. The text notes that there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. In short, he was a striking character of regal bearing, surely a promising candidate to become king of this people. But pretty much right away, Saul begins to act like a king, which in this case means he ignores the counsel of Samuel, chooses instead to make up his own mind as to how the people should be governed. Pretty much right away, in other words, Saul holds power in the same way that the kings of other nations hold power. Well, as tonight's narrative opens, we find that this has all been a source of considerable grief for Samuel, but also that the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel, that God regretted grieved over the anointing of Saul. Regret? I mean, hadn't God been able to see this all coming? This is where, in these stories, the theme of human freedom comes powerfully into play. Saul had been entrusted with real authority in the life of the nation. And the choices he makes are very much real. Might he have chosen differently? Might he have heeded the counsel of Samuel? I think so. I believe so. Saul is not a pawn on a chessboard, being moved around in some predetermined way until the divine chessmaker decides to knock him off the board. No, Saul chose to play the kingship game strictly according to his own strategies, and that's the source of God's sorrow. 
But the story then begins to move quickly from God's grief to something else. As Walter Brueggemann has it, the season of grief has passed. Now it is time to laugh, celebrate, and rejoice. It's time for David. The turn from weeping to laughter happens because God does a new thing. The new thing, inexplicably new, is this David who simply overrides the old tension and silences the old uneasiness about kingship. He's the boy of promise. Well, being that Saul is still very much alive and still very much the king, very much in power, it's going to take a little bit of subterfuge for Samuel to get himself to Bethlehem to seek out this new king who turns out to be David. You stop and think about it for a minute and you realize that what Samuel is called to do is basically a treasonous act. He does manage to get into the land of Bethlehem, into that region, where he seeks out a man named Jesse. For it is among Jesse's sons that a new king is to be found and anointed. And so the narrator tells us when the sons of Jesse come, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord, Eliab being the oldest son. We can infer from what follows that Eliab is also pretty physically impressive, probably in the same way that Saul had been, because the Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I've rejected Eliab. The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Don't bother with his good looks, nor with the fact that he's the eldest. That's not how this is going to work, not when the Lord is looking at the heart. Even you, Samuel, are making the assumption that humans so easily tend to make that just because Eliab looks like good royal material, he must be the right choice. Look again, Samuel, look again. And so Jesse calls forward Abinadab, the second oldest son, and then Shammah, the third oldest. And then one after another, he calls out four more of his sons in order. But no, one after another, they're rejected. None of these has the right heart for this calling. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep, the youngest, the one who's left with the menial job of shepherding, the one Jesse hadn't even bothered bringing out when Samuel arrived. Who cares about the shepherd boy? Well, evidently God cares about the shepherd boy. Jesse sends for David, and he's brought before Samuel, who hears the voice of the Lord saying, Rise and anoint him, for he is the one. This is the one with the right heart for the job a man after God's own heart, as David will later be described. The young David, says Brueggemann, 
The young David is one of the marginal people. He's uncredentialed and has no social claim to make. And it's on account of that that he stands at least for this moment as a model of the last shall be first. Yet the narrator can't help but add this little editorial note. I don't know if you caught it. I mean, this is kind of all about the unlikely, the last, the little being chosen, the, the statusless, the youngest, the shepherd, the boy. But the narrator can't help but say this. David was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Oh, outward appearance is not what would determine this anointing. It's all about the heart of the boy. But he's pretty darned irresistible, isn't he? The tradition adores David and will continue to adore David even later when he falters and falls so badly, even when he too begins to act like a king of the other nations, the tradition will never cease looking at him with eyes of wonder. Well, the text is silent regarding the reaction this all gets from Jesse, from Dad, from Eliab, Abinadab, Shammah, and the other brothers. Maybe that's because they were more or less speechless in face of this unexpected, upside-down anointing of the boy. The boy is to be the king. The shepherd is to be anointed king. Their king. In fact, David himself in the text doesn't even say a word. He just receives the anointing. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day forward. The sermon series preached on these David stories at Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ. Dr. Otis Moss III raised some fascinating observations about what David's experiences might have to say to African-American men living in Chicago's South Side. Now, to speak of South Side Chicago is a little bit like speaking of North End Winnipeg. You're talking about very particular social, economic, and even racial realities. And so Dr. Moss, preaching to a community largely drawn from the South Side, suggested that his daddy, David's daddy, didn't even think David could be anointed as the king. Jesse didn't even think to include David when Samuel asked to meet the sons. He didn't even register Jesse just left the boy out with the sheep, assuming that he didn't count. Then, looking ahead to some of the ways that David would choose to live his life, attend or not attend to his own family, and structure his own way of ruling, Pastor Moss wondered how that, that lack of recognition and inclusion from his father, no less, how that continued to walk with him. Well, for now, just let that question be, but consider it planted. 
Later in the series, I'll be returning to some of the even more poignant questions that Otis Moss raises about David's choices and David's family and how they speak very much into contemporary communities, particularly on the south side of Chicago. For now, let's just let the narrator affirm that David is the one. He has the right heart. The Spirit of the Lord is mightily upon him. The last, the least, the littlest of the brothers turns out to be the chosen one. To riff on one of the short parables we read from the Gospel according to Mark, the tiny mustard seed is about to yield something more than you would ever expect. And with those beautiful eyes and those handsome good looks, the narrator simply can't resist. Well, these stories we're going to tell can only get more and more interesting, to say nothing of disarmingly honest. As the summer moves on, the story will be continued. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.